I know. I know. This is the second month in a row with only one story. But this one's pretty long again. You'll have two stories on a theme next month, I promise. Oh, and happy Halloween. Okay, let's get started. Comets, for most of human history, were a spectacular mystery to humanity. Now, of course, we know that comets are simply icy balls of rock that, when they get too close to the sun, start to melt. But for a long time, they were omens of death or oncoming catastrophe. Plague, war, blighted crops, anything really could be portended by a comet. At some points through history, it was even thought that comets were tools of the gods themselves attacking Earth. And even now, knowing what we know about orbits and gravity and objects whizzing through space, comets still, for some, carry the weight of something far greater than a passing ball of ice. When comet Hale-Bopp appeared in 1997, 39 members of the Heaven's Gate cult committed suicide, trying to ascend to the alien spacecraft that they were certain followed in the comet's tail. This month, on Death Dying and Other Things, a single story of a celestial event, in two parts. In Starfall, a meteor shower brings with it more than just an evening light show. Death and dying are the threshold between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Phantom Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. As it fell to earth, the star split into three pieces, and then those three pieces split into three pieces, and then those into three more, and so on until, when they finally hit the ground, they covered every corner of the town. Left at each impact point, on street corners and in backyards, on sleepy hilltops and under bridges, were brilliant shards of something much larger than the sum of them. A bright gray metal somehow still polished to a mirror, despite the force the thing underwent upon entry to our atmosphere. A force so great that it ripped the thing asunder, sending those countless fragments of metal down to terra firma, to our coil. When the search, led by a local eccentric and undergone mostly by children paid a meager summer wage, was over, they had found 127 pieces. 127 pieces of polished metal that, when gathered together, didn't hint at any larger configuration. They were each, to the last, four or so inches long, egg-shaped, and polished clean. They were lighter than they appeared they would be, and when placed on a flat surface, would sit completely still in whatever position they were placed in initially. They wouldn't inherit any kinetic force either. Pushing them along a flat surface yielded no results of momentum. 
The moment external force was no longer being applied, the objects would stop moving entirely, as if halted by some cosmic parking brake. The local eccentric, whose name was Bandabil, boxed each one of these fragments up, for he knew the government would soon be there for them. They were, and he gave them all up freely, for though he was eccentric, he knew that was a battle he would lose. For years, what the government and Bandabil discussed in the wake of the Starfall remained the stuff of local legend. When Bandabil wouldn't talk, the legends grew to assume that he was sworn to secrecy, whether by bribery or threat of force, and when, ten years on from the night of the Starfall, Bandabil first started locking himself in his home for long stretches of time, the legends had subsided, and people had mostly forgotten. When Jennifer Reynolds moved to town, Bandabil was well into the winter of his life. He was hardly seen anymore, not even to shop for food or other supplies. He had supplies delivered, by what arrangement no one knew exactly. So reclusive was Bandabil that Jennifer Reynolds first heard about him well into her second year in town. When the legend of the local eccentric recluse came up and piqued Jennifer's interest, those parties who knew of the man, co-workers at the university, didn't have answers to any of Jennifer's questions. How old was he? Why did he lock himself in his house? What did he do up there all day? They were barely able to remember his name, and went through a handful of names that started with B, Barnabas, Branson, Bowling, Billings, Bedford, before someone exercised the name that rested on the tip of their tongues, and they all agreed that yes, his name was Bandabil, though they couldn't decide if that was his first name or his last name. When Jennifer asked where he lived, her fellow university staff couldn't remember that either, and when it was clear that she wouldn't get any answers to any questions about the local hermit known as Bandabil, she let it go. The objects that fell out of the sky that night so long ago didn't even broach the conversation. Jennifer Reynolds forgot the conversation involving Bandabil within the night, and he didn't reemerge in her life until several months later. It wasn't obvious at first not overt. She would be standing in line at a local sandwich shop, among the pungent smells of bread, when, across the shop, at some corner table, a word would float up from a conversation and sound vaguely like Bandabil, and her ears would perk up, and her gaze would be drawn over to the socializing group. Or she would be cleaning dishes in her kitchen with the television on in the other room, and something sounding vaguely like Bandabil would travel through the wall and fight through the faucet and crawl into her ear, and she would turn the tap off and listen hard at the television and hear only the evening weather report. Or Jennifer would be on a morning run, earbuds embedded in her ear canals, and through the loud music being piped straight to her eardrums, she'd hear a dull noise that reminded her of Bandabil and she'd trot to a stop and take out her earbuds and look around and discover it was only a garbage truck dropping a dumpster back onto the street in a nearby alley. Bandabil, whoever he was, became a haunting fixture in Jennifer's life in those months after the initial conversation. He took up residence in the liminal space between her thoughts, in the white noise of the running shower, in the dull roar of a crowded space full of countless conversations. It was like he had opened up a direct line of communication right into her subconscious. And there was no telling why. There was no guessing at reason. Perhaps Jennifer, having lived in this town for almost two years, was just getting bored, and her subconscious was looking for an adventure. 
perhaps the name Bandabil, with its soft corners and pillowy cadence, just stuck in her head, like some pleasant song that takes up residence in the mind. In any case, Hermine's building preoccupation with Bandabil was becoming untenable, and she was slowly realizing she'd have to feed her appetite in some way. Jennifer's initial research into the topic was easy, and it made her think much less of her co-workers that they couldn't recall any of the specifics when it was so well documented and so easy to access. Papers from the time chronicled the falling star, and then, in the days after, Bandabil's raised army, the search for the pieces, and the government's arrival. There were even a few articles in the immediate aftermath, theorizing about the government's involvement and speculating how they were able to convince such a renowned bloviator to keep his mouth shut. After these last few articles, the local media seemed to be satisfied with the conclusion of the story of Bandabil and the Starfall, and trusted that the government was acting prudently and in their best interest. They also pointed Jennifer in the direction of his house, a large one, full of ornate pomp that once sat on a hill in a remote and private part of town, but that had since been taken over by local industry. Jennifer had been to that sign of town before, office parks and fenced-in car lots far as the eye could see. She found it difficult to imagine where a large house would even be hidden in that neighborhood. Jennifer's mind, in the aftermath of this short flurry of research, was simultaneously pleased that she now knew who this Bandabil was and where she could find him, but also swimming in the new murk of a fresh mystery. What fell to earth all those years ago, and why would it concern the government? Jennifer pulled up to the house the following afternoon, a large house on a small hill past three large office parks and down a narrow, seldom-used road. The office parks obscured the house in such a way that if you didn't travel there with the specific goal of finding Bandabil's house, there was no chance of ever stumbling upon it. Jennifer thought that this probably worked in the old hermit's favor, and then thought he would probably didn't get many visitors. Then she wondered if he'd even be home at the moment, though she reasoned hermits usually are. And then this line of thought terminated at its natural conclusion. What if he's dead? She never searched for an obituary, and her co-workers didn't know much about the man at all. People hadn't seen him for a very long time, and it was entirely possible that the reason for this was his death at some point in the intervening years. She used the large door knocker on the oak door. Her eyes were drawn immediately upward, where the curtains in some second-story window fluttered in response to her knocking. She naturally assumed that this meant Bandabil, who she assumed was the culprit behind the curtains, was headed downstairs to answer her call at the door, but that answer never came, and it didn't come with another knock, nor did it come in response to her shout of Mr. Bandabil up to that second-floor window. She turned away from the door and hesitated. In this late afternoon, after the workday had ended and the workers had all left the buildings below and the sun was low in the sky and the wind was dying and the birds had stopped singing, everything that surrounded her suddenly felt sinister. She glanced back up to the second story, to the window, and saw what looked like a single eye peering down at her through a gap in the curtains. She arrived home that night, irritated but not discouraged. She loved a good challenge even more than a good mystery, and when the two presented themselves as one, it was hard for Jennifer to focus on anything else. This visit, 
this unsuccessful voyage to the source of her curiosity actually had the opposite effect on her, as it often did. It got her blood flowing, so to speak, entrenching her more thoroughly in the story she was trying to piece together. She put on a pot of coffee and ate a cup of instant noodles, which she always kept on hand for this type of occasion. The instant noodles reminded her of youth, of those nights spent immersing herself in research for some story or other, when she was just getting her footing earlier in her career. She was done with the food by the time the coffee was ready, and she poured herself a large mug of black coffee and curled up on her couch with the coffee and her laptop. She remembered a detail from her initial research into Bandabil and the events of the Starfall, that he had enlisted the help of a small army of young people in retrieving the fallen objects in the days that followed. He paid them a wage and sent them to look, and Jennifer thought that if she could track down a few of them, they could point her in the right direction, or maybe give her a little insight into Bandabil himself. More insight than anyone operating on third and fourth-hand rumors, at least. Rereading the articles and opinions from the days following the Starfall, she found a few names of those that helped search and quotes that the newspaper printed about what a good time they were having. Henry Polk said, It pays less than the corner store did last summer, but I get to ride all around town and look for this stuff. Michael Walsh said, I like it well enough. It's fun to search for these things. He pays a bonus if we find one. Ray Donald said, He's kind of weird, but I like the money he pays. Using these three names to go off of, Jennifer started to search for the kids who are now adults. She searched all of the usual places, but kept coming up empty. She couldn't find any recent records of those three names around town. There was one Michael Walsh, but he was far too old to be a match. Jennifer assumed that these three had happened to move away from town at some point, and so went looking for some more names. And when those ended in a dead end, and the next batch did too, she began to worry. Jennifer stayed up late into the night that night, like she used to in college, like she used to in the first few years of her career, when she still had passion she couldn't control. This story suddenly felt full and heavy, filled with muck to wade through and gold to pan for. Something to uncover, some kernel of knowledge at the center of the story that had the power to change the community of this small college town. The clock at this point in her shifting attitudes read a number she hadn't seen in years when she finally called off the research and decided to get a few hours sleep before work the next morning. Her body, nor her mind, were prepared for what the lack of sleep would do to her the next day. Maybe it was a side effect of getting old, or perhaps she was just out of practice, but she was constantly distracted through the first of her lectures, trailing off and losing her train of thought with regularity. She canceled the second and third lectures she had that day, blaming an illness she didn't have, and left for home with a plan to sleep when she got there. Of course, she didn't sleep when she got there. Instead, she put on a pot of coffee and returned to the top of the list of children she had found the night prior, with the objective of tracing their lives once they moved away from that sleepy college town. Henry Polk. Through county records, birth records, local school records, she zeroed in on two Henry Polks that might have been the Henry Polk she was looking for. They were born within two years of each other, on opposite ends of the town, at each of the two local hospitals, and would have been the right age at the time of the Starfall. 
She picked up and dialed the phone number, hoping to catch this Henry Polk as he arrived home from work. But a woman answered. Hello? The voice on the other end of the phone said. Hi, hello. My name's Jennifer Reynolds and I'm... She trailed off and considered how to introduce herself. She couldn't introduce herself as a weirdo with a mystery fetish, and so thought of the local paper and continued, a reporter with the Niles County Dispatch and also a journalism professor at Mills University. Lying felt bad, but she was betting that it would feel less bad than telling the truth. Okay, the voice said, not satisfied or impressed. I'm doing a story about something that happened here a while back, and I was trying to reach Henry Polk to maybe ask a few questions, Jennifer said. Oh, here we go, the voice responded. Do you know Henry, Jennifer said. Yeah, I know Henry. He's my husband, and he doesn't know anything about that other Henry, okay? What's your name, Jennifer asked, hoping to build some rapport with the woman. Kelly. Okay, Kelly. So your husband isn't the Henry Polk that worked for someone named Bandibill back in? No, Kelly Polk said, knifing her voice straight through Jennifer's question. Well, is there any chance I could speak to him anyhow? Jennifer asked. He's not home. Wait. I think this is him coming through the door. Yeah, that's Henry. Henry. Got a lady from the newspaper on the phone asking about that other Henry again. Jennifer heard Henry Polk's voice through the receiver. Nah. Just tell her what we tell the others. Look, Kelly said, turning her attention back to Jennifer. Henry doesn't know anything about that other Henry, or Brandyburg, or whatever his name is, or where that other Henry went after he disappeared. He disappeared? Jennifer asked. You didn't know? Most reporters at least know that much before they call us up, Kelly said. Henry doesn't know nothing. Other reporters have called? Only every couple years. Nothing ever comes of it, though least as far as I know. Then, Kelly's demeanor turned, souring rapidly. What did you say your name was? Jennifer. Jennifer, please don't call us again, Kelly said, wrapping her words in all of the fake sugar she could muster. Then, she hung up on Jennifer. The other names went similarly to the first, if she could find anyone to call at all. The Michael Walshes and Ray Donalds she did manage to track down were never the correct Michael Walshes or Ray Donalds, and the trails of the correct Michael Walshes and Ray Donalds all fell cold in the years following their graduation from high school. If they all moved, none of them attended college or started a business or had any sort of social footprint at all, and so... Jennifer came to the conclusion that they hadn't moved away at all. But the most disturbing thing to Jennifer about the lack of any trace of these people was that if they did go missing, no one seemed to have raised much of a fuss about it. No missing persons records, no police reports, their names weren't in any of the papers after those initial interviews. No one seemed to be too concerned that they weren't around anymore. 
if they really weren't around, of course, and it wasn't just that Jennifer couldn't find them. Jennifer leaned back and stared at the ceiling. A mysterious recluse and a bunch of young people that had vanished without much fanfare. That's all she knew, and somehow its tendrils had dug deep into her chest and wrapped around her heart, captivating her beyond measure. She had to get Bandibill to agree to a meeting. The only phone number she could find for Bandibill was in an old phone book, and that number had been long since disconnected. The letters she tried to write were returned to her unopened. Calls at Bandibill's front door still went unanswered. And still there were the stories from her colleagues that Bandibill had died at some point in the past. They were sure they had heard that, though they couldn't remember when. But Jennifer had seen him, or someone, in that house the first time she knocked, and Bandibill, like his assistants, had no death certificate, no obituary, no mention in the local paper, as you would assume a local legend would have if they passed. Jennifer wrote another letter, simple and clear, to Bandibill, which she would deliver by hand so that it couldn't be returned by the post. It read, Mr. Bandibill, I am a reporter writing about the extraordinary story I've both heard and read about the things that fell from the sky all those years ago. I would love to hear your perspective on those events. Please don't hesitate to reach me at any time. Signed, Jennifer Reynolds. She'd deliver it after her lectures. She left the university late, and the sun had already receded behind the horizon when Jennifer pulled her car off the highway and snaked through the office parks to reach the end of Bandibill's driveway. It was the first time Jennifer was seeing the house in the twilight hours and the oranges and the pinks from the sky cast a sickly glow over the outside of the house. Walking up to the front door, she expected to find a mail slot. She didn't know why she expected one. Maybe it was just the age of the house or the style. Maybe it reminded her of old movies where rubber-banded stacks of mail would tumble through mail slots into warm houses, and golden retrievers would bring the mail to their owners. She wondered for a second whether this house that was so close from the outside could be warm on the inside. Whether Bandibill was a kindly old man in a thick wool sweater, sitting by his fire and enjoying the last few years of his life, and whether it was wise, or kind, to disturb him with what she was sure he thought of as ancient history. She had these second thoughts in a mental whirlwind, along with a second guessing of her motives. What was she trying to do here, or prove, or uncover? Certainly, if she was successful in uncovering anything and publishing a story about this anywhere, it would rip open old wounds and start up old controversies. For the first time since Jennifer started on this path, and maybe for the first time in her career, she contemplated what she was doing, what her purpose was. In her naked self-consciousness, in the wake of the moment's hesitation, Jennifer took a half-step backward, and then the door opened and rattled against a chain. The inside was dark, near pitch black, not the blanket of warm, natural light she was expecting. She could barely see six inches inside the minor view the cracked door afforded, much less who was in there, who had opened the door, and who now blurted out. Why do you keep coming here? Mr. Bandibill? she asked the voice. Just Bandibill, please. Now what do you want? Bandibill, sorry. I'd just like to speak with you about something that happened here a while ago. Do you remember when those things fell out of the sky? Bandibill was silent for a moment, 
perhaps considering what to say or perhaps considering if he should say anything at all, until he finally asked Jennifer, Who are you? Sorry, yes, sorry. My name is Jennifer Reynolds. I teach journalism at the university, but I'm also a journalist myself. And when I heard the story, I just thought, there she was again, suddenly realizing she didn't know what she thought or why she had pursued the story or why she was there in that moment on Bandibill's doorstep. You just had to know, Bandibill said. Jennifer was surprised to find that this rang true to her. Yes, I just had to know, she said. Then, she added, to sound at least a little professional, and perhaps read a story about it. A story, Bandibill repeated. Yes, a story, for the paper, maybe. You work for the paper. No, not officially, she said. Suddenly, Bandibill shoved his face into the gap in the doorway, fixing one pale eye on Jennifer and looking her up and down. His skin was gray and pale and looked like paper. Wisps of colorless hair hung down over his face. You won't want to do a story about this anyway. He closed the door, and Jennifer assumed that that was that, until she heard the rattling of the chain behind the door. Then the door swung open, welcoming Jennifer into the dark house. Bandibill, who had already slipped into the house's shadows, repeated this invite. Come in. Take a seat. Jennifer's eyes took her minutes to adjust to the low light of the Bandibill house, and while she stood there, just inside the door, functionally blind, her nose filled with a whirlwind of different aromas. Dust and moldy fabric were the most pronounced, as they are in every old home, but underneath those smells were the sharp fragrances of chemicals Jennifer wasn't familiar with, and beyond those were the more familiar tangy smells of metals, and even beyond those smells were traces of something Jennifer couldn't quite place. Her eyes struggled to adjust until several lamps around the first floor of the house switched on. The living room, which she now saw from the entryway, was furnished with dust-covered pieces of 40-year-old furniture and gaudy wallpaper. She followed Bandibill's command and sat on one of the old armchairs. Dust danced up around her, each particle blazing in turn as it caught the orange light from the solitary lamp nearby. She wondered where Bandibill had gone to, and then took a closer look around this room she was in now. In addition to the two armchairs and couch, there was a coffee table, several side tables, and several shelves, and on all of these, every vertical surface in the room, were countless metal eggs of different shades. Some were brilliantly silver, shining in the low light. Some were dull and tarnished. In front of her, a specific egg-shaped hunk of metal, dark gray but smooth as silk, caught her attention. She picked it up and was surprised by its heft. Tungsten, Bandibill blurted out, startling Jennifer and nearly causing her to drop the object. He was holding a tray of drinks. It's heavy, she said. Yes, too heavy. Not right. None of these are. Lemonade. He extended the tray to Jennifer, offering her a drink. The skin on his arms was translucent, like clear gelatin. She could see every blood vessel worming its way beneath the surface of his skin. She took one of the glasses from the tray, and then he put the tray down on the coffee table in front of them, in between several other metal eggs. 
Bandabil's outward appearance stumped Jennifer after seeing him move around the room with ease. He didn't seem nearly as old as he looked. He plopped down on the couch across from her. I could never get it right. Pure metals, alloys, light metals, heavy metals, nothing was right. Right, she asked. You're familiar with the story, yes? The things that fell from the sky all those years ago. The reason you're here. Oh, she said. I guess I'm more curious about the kids who disappeared. The kids who helped you track down those things. Yeah, the kids. But yes, tell me about all these things. You made all of them? I did. After the government took all the objects I had collected. That the kids collected for you, Jennifer said. Bandabil smiled. Yes, true. After the government took them from me, I tried to recreate them. I never came close. They were so peculiar. I read a little about that, she said. How they seemed to ignore the laws of physics. I thought maybe it had to do with the shape. Or the kind of metal they were constructed from. Perhaps the constructors of the objects had unlocked some mystery of physics. Perhaps they had sent them here as a gift. Whatever their secrets, I wasn't able to unlock them. Okay, that's interesting, she said. And the kids? The kids were unfortunate, Bandabil said. Unfortunate? In what way? she asked. Well, in the only way there is, he said. Do you want to see one? Jennifer's heart sank, straightened to her gut, assuming he meant one of the kids, assuming he had been holding them prisoner for all this time, but a second's reflection on his tone revealed he had moved the conversation back to the objects. Like a real one, she asked. You kept one. Of course I kept one. Always advertised the count as one less than I actually possessed. It was only a matter of time before the government came knocking, and when I was so ready to comply, they didn't ask questions. So, would you like to see? Jennifer considered, and then, finally, agreed to see the otherworldly thing. Bandabil led her down into a damp basement. He had improved the space as much as a basement might be improved. There was furniture and rugs and light enough to see by. He crossed the basement to a small workstation with a table, a rack of tools, various instruments and several trunks and boxes, which Jennifer assumed was for storage. He grabbed a solidly built wood box from on top of the work table and opened it up, turning to Jennifer to display its contents. On the inside was black felt, bunched up to hold a roughly four-inch metal object, shaped roughly like an egg. This is it? Jennifer asked. It is, Bandabil said. Go ahead and pick it up. Jennifer's curiosity immediately got the better of her, and she plunged her hand into the box and grasped the object. Wow, it's so light, she said, lifting the thing out of the box. Yes, I don't know what it's made from. Open your hand and hold it in your palm. She did, and Bandabil retrieved a small metal hammer from his tool chest. He tapped the object in Jennifer's hand with the hammer. It let out a brilliant, perfect note, 
Her ears perked up, and she thought out loud that she had never heard such a pleasant sound. Go ahead, Bandeville said. Try to balance the thing, or roll it across the table. It's impervious to momentum. She did, and it was. It's incredible, she said. But what does this have to do with the kids' disappearances? Where are they? But Bandeville still wanted to talk about the objects. 128 in all, at least that's what we could find. But the question I was trying to answer was what they were for and why they were here. They're so very obviously not natural. They needed to be made by something or someone, right? Right, but she tried to refocus him, but he was off to the races, rushing around the basement, touching this thing and that thing, trying to get the information out of his head as fast as he could. But then it started happening. First to me, I think because I touched them most of all, but then, years later, to the kids. And it was always in a code we couldn't break, and so it's always useless. But it never stopped. And it still hasn't stopped. Some of us have only gotten good at tuning it out. Jennifer was fed up. What are you talking about? Their communication devices, don't you see? Touching them attunes your body to receive their messages. The kids, the kids couldn't bear it. Eventually, they all came back to me for help when the voices drove them mad. They're here. They're all here with us, don't you see? Jennifer looked around the room and didn't see anybody. You'll hear them now soon enough, just like I hear them, just like we all hear them. And then you'll be back, Bandibill said. I would like to leave, Jennifer said. You're free to do what you want. No one's keeping you here. Jennifer hurried up the basement steps and out the front door. Rushing over the front lawn, she glanced back at the house and saw the curtain of a second-floor window shut suddenly. She sped home and locked her door, barricading it against some force she somehow knew would come. That night was sleepless, and by the morning she was already hearing them, just like Bandabil said. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The story, Starfall, was written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Space Junk and Meteors. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Phantom Podcast Network. Be sure to check out all the other great shows. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. <laughs> <laughs>